and um, I do want to uh, preserve a, a rather lengthy uh, audience discussion at the end of this uh, because we found this is the third time we've given a session like this and we found that the audience discussion is actually uh, in some ways more interesting than what we're going to talk about. So um, I'm really hoping that, um, that you all stick around uh, and participate in the audience discussion. Um, we, this session is being recorded, so during the audience discussion, we're going to have a little bit of awkwardness as we have to pass around the microphone. Otherwise, your voices won't be heard uh, on the, the recording, and this recording will be available on the Internet for anybody to uh, listen to. Um, so we'll just deal with that when it comes to it. But um, I'd like to thank you all for being here. It's a really um, big crowd, so um, that, makes me, that always makes me happy. Um, and these have been really interesting sessions, and uh, the, I'll just let you know ahead of time, um, I have two wonderful ladies here, uh, my colleagues who are going to participate in this with me, and just so there are no secrets, um, we don't know what each other is going to present, and I, and I do that purposely because I want it to be as fresh for me as it is for you. You haven't seen what they're going to present, I haven't seen it, but the bottom line is that we want it to be about objects and the way objects are used in a museum and how uh, the different types of uh, professionals view those objects within the museum. So I'm not really sure what all of your background is, but you can probably identify with uh, somebody up here who is presenting their side of the object. So um, the format is that we will have um, our first speaker come up, uh, and that will be, uh, I want to get my things right here, that will be Karen Vincent, who is the Director of Collections at Minatrista uh, in Muncie, Indiana, and she'll uh, tell you a little bit more about her institution. Um, she'll speak. And then uh, we'll have a, 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 a maybe a five to ten minute, uh, that would be the point, and then we'll have a five to ten minute counterpoint um, where my other colleague, uh, Elaine Rosa, who is Director of Education at the Indiana Historical Society here in Indianapolis, um, she will speak and uh, give her, her point of view from what the first speaker said, and then I will speak, or I'll speak, and then she'll speak, and we'll give our, our counterpoints to what was said on the screen. And then another speaker, um, myself, will get up and give a, another uh, presentation or show some slides and talk about issues, and it'll, it'll just take place like that for three um, sessions. So there, and each of those hopefully will be 20 minutes each, and then we'll have a half an hour at the end for audience participation. So, and my name is Scott Carley. I'm the um, Curator of Museum Services at the Alaska State Museum, uh, and my background and training is as a conservator. Uh, so I was a conservator at the Alaska State Museum for about six years. Uh, I've been in the field of conservation for about 20 years, uh, and now what I do is preventive conservation outreach for the state of Alaska, so hence my title is Curator of Museum Services. So um, enough about uh, the introductions, and what I'd like to do is just make sure that we have enough time for everything. I'd just like to start off with um, Karen Vincent. get this down low enough for me. Uh, give myself a minute to get organized here. Uh -oh, the yeah, it's fine. Okay. 
Well, Scott said, I'm from Minnetrista. Uh, we're in Muncie, Indiana. We're about 60 miles northeast of here, also on the White River, and hence the name of our institution. Uh, Minnetrista is, is a made-up word. At least we always thought that until we found out that there's a city in Minnesota, or yes, Minnesota, also named Minnetrista. But it means gathering place by the water, and we are on a bluff above the White River. We opened in 1988. We were founded by the Ball family of... Ball fruit jar fame. And this is always how I explain what Minnetrist is. I start with a ball jar because everybody knows ball jars. Uh, we're a 40-acre campus uh -huh. uh, with the main museum building that opened in 1988. Uh, we have nine buildings on our campus, including three of the Ball family homes. We have an eight-acre nature area right in the middle of downtown Muncie two retail operations, one where we still press apple cider. The same has been done on that site for about 70 years now. So we're continuing that um, tradition. We do lots of outdoor events. We also have farmer's market uh, from May through the end of October. And two farmer's markets a week, an evening and a Saturday, and we bring in about 2,000 people a week for our farmer's markets. And again, it continues a tradition of selling produce on that site from the gardens at Minatrista. We have a collection of about 20,000 artifacts and about 2,000 linear feet of archival material. Uh, we started collecting in 1987, so not too long before we opened. And the core of our collection is related to the Ball family and the Ball companies. Uh, of course, over the years, uh, the jar has been the mainstay. Ball no longer makes jars. They're still very much in business. They haven't made jars for about 10 years now. Other companies make jars. The license was sold, and other companies make the jars. Ball's main industry now is aerospace, and they are located in Broomfield, Colorado. When they left, <laughs> yeah, fruit jars to satellites. It's, <laughs> it's quite, quite a segue there. Uh, when they left uh, Muncie in 1998, they gave us, they had a small museum at the corporate headquarters, and they gave that to us. So we have about a thousand ball jars in the collection. Um, we have several glass making machines. We have the president's desk. Uh, we have a lot of other products that they made too. Uh, everything from uh, your beer cans. So look at your Coke cans and your beer cans. They do still make aluminum cans and you'll find the ball logo on a lot of them. To uh, freezer jars. We were talking, just talking about those. Uh, but as I said, their main industry is aerospace and they make the parts that fix problems on the Hubble. Um, Ball jars are a dime a dozen. Uh, generally, they're not worth that much because Ball was the largest manufacturer of, of fruit jars in the world for very many years. And uh, I get phone calls on a regular basis of, from people who have just cleared out Grandma's basement after she died, and they found 50 ball jars, and they think they've found a treasure. Unfortunately, they haven't. There are a few jars, though, that are worth something, and it's mainly because of the story, and that's what I want to tell you a little bit about. We've had a history at Minatrista because we have, we're not a history museum, we're a general museum. So we bring in traveling exhibits on a variety of different subjects. We do a couple of juried art shows a year. We do uh, one-person art shows. Uh, 
but we also do at least one history exhibit a year relating to East Central Indiana. Over the years, we've had a lot of programmers and educators who haven't had any history background, and we have a whole collections department that only has a history background. So we haven't always talked to each other in the best way possible in order to incorporate the stories from the collection into programs, exhibits. In 2008, we added a theater and outreach program, and we brought in somebody who had museum theater experience. Um, and one of the first that he knew that most of their productions were going to be geared toward children and geared toward our school groups and geared toward doing outreach in schools. But he wanted the, one of the first things he did, which we will be forever grateful for, is to meet with the collections department to ask about our stories, what stories we had in the collection, what were our favorite things. Well, we have lots, but two of them concern Paul Jars. One of them is a very heartwarming story. The other one isn't. Um, during the Great Depression, their Southern Methodist Orphans Home in Waco, Texas, was having a hard time feeding their children. Uh, people were without jobs. They weren't able to give to the orphanage. And the number of children who were left on the doorstep just increased. And the director was just having a very difficult time trying to figure out how to feed his children. He knew he couldn't ask the community for any more money because they didn't have it. He did have one benefactor, however, who had about $1,500, obviously a fortune during the Depression, that he was willing to give to the orphanage. Well, the director didn't want to spend that just on food because he knew that would go quickly. So he worked with the ball plant in Wichita Falls, Texas, who gave him a great deal and produced 16,000 half-gallon fruit jars for him. These fruit jars, they were embossed with the word Southern Methodist Orphans Home, Waco, Texas. The director brought them back to his community and started giving them out. Most people did home canning, and he just gave them to anybody he knew in the community, asked them to take at least one jar, and they did. And as they were canning, that jar just went in with the rest of their jars, and they canned something in it. It didn't matter what. It could be green beans or peaches or applesauce or whatever. It didn't make any difference to him. And then after canning season, he came around and picked up the jars. And that's how he fed his children throughout the Depression. And we know this because there's lots of documentation for it. But very few of the jars still exist. In fact, we only know of two of them. There are probably more. We have one in the collection at Minatrista. We also know that one of the administrators, because we've talked to him, one of the administrators, former administrators, he's retired now, kept one of the jars on the desk because he was a child who lived there during the Depression. And he, he had very, well, he had fond memories of eating what was in the jar and not so fond memories of, of washing all of them. So we do have that in our collection. That was one of our stories. We have something else in the collection, and again, this, uh, these are very rare. And again, we don't know of too many of them. But um, ball workers were given the opportunity after hours to make things on their own. 
They could use leftover glass, and as long as it wasn't on company time, management would let them do things. So we have several absolutely beautiful glass canes in the collection. Uh, they also made little whimsies. Uh, we have a fruit jar that's shaped like a top hat, so the guys worked on those sort of things. Well, this was the 1920s, and in the 1920s in Indiana, the Klan, Ku Klux Klan had a stronghold on the state, and in Muncie and Delaware County, approximately one out of every four adult males was a member of the Klan. Well, we have no records. This was not done with management's approval by any means, but a lot of these workers, and they had to work together because one person can't make a jar. They modified some molds, and they made clan jars. So you see, it's hard to see, but at the, the bottom of this one, it looks like a regular jar. Um, but on the bottom is a robed figure. Now the other one is just a fragment of a jar. And we have this, and it just says Fiery Cross on there. We only know of one other jar that still exists. And that came to us a couple of years ago from a, uh, two brothers in Anderson, also near here. They found it in their father's garage after he died. They assured us over and over and over again that he was not a member of the clan, but just went to a lot of auctions. Um, we tried to get them to no donate the jar, but they sold it uh, and got quite a bit of money for it. Um, so those are the only ones we know about. My theory is there's probably lots more in Muncie, but they're in basements, and people have found them after they've cleared out after grandma or dad died, um, and they've either just hidden them away or else they've broken them. So just my theory. Well, those were the two stories that really caught the ear of our new theater manager. And then when we decided to do an exhibit to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the ball jar, those two stories came to the top again. And two Two, two, one person, eight to ten minute performances were developed. The first one was Bounty, based on the Southern Methodist Orphan's Home Jar, and the second one was a working man's responsibility based on the Ku Klux Klan jar. So we worked together, um, the theater folks and us, to do a lot of research, finding out more about the children's home. It does still exist. It's the Methodist children's home now rather than an orphan's home, but it still exists in Waco, Texas, and contacted them. They gave us lots of photographs and more information about their story during the Depression. Uh, we also did a lot more research on the Klan in Muncie, Delaware County, and Indiana. Uh, hired professional scriptwriters to write the scripts. And then those came back to us and they were reviewed over and over and over again by the theater manager for dramatic value, by the educators for educational value, by the archivist and, and myself for historical accuracy. The plays were ready. They were great. They were, we, um, a lot of uh, rehearsal went into them. Um, then they were ready to be performed. The Southern Methodist um, the, the bounty the, about the Southern Methodist jar shows a woman in her kitchen. She has five children. Her husband's out of work. He's gone north to look for work. And she's debating whether or not she can fill this jar, if that will take food away from her own children, because she doesn't know if her husband will get a job and how she's going to feed her children during the coming winter. Well, we knew that we needed 
an artifact for that place. She needed to be able to have something in hand. But we weren't going to let her use the real thing. So we have very um, creative theater people. And she took, or one of the actresses, took a much more modern jar, but, you know, they don't look a whole lot different. And she found some kind of little sticky stuff in the craft store that she wrote, Property of Southern Methodist Orphan's Home, Waco, Texas, on the back of this jar. And this is what she used in the theater production. Well, we knew we did want the real thing in the gallery also, but we didn't want it so close that it was going to distract people as they watched the play. So the, the exhibit was slightly around the corner and to the back. And when she was done with her performance, she directed people, she did a question and answer and directed people to the real thing, safely in its locked case all by itself. The uh, working man's responsibility about the clan jar is a young man, one person, he's a 17-year-old factory worker. And he's cleaning up after his shift and getting ready to head out for an evening with his friends. And he finds a clan jar. And he's just baffled and horrified. And what does he do? Does he break it? Does he put it back and pretend he didn't see it? Does he give it to management? He, never, he has a hard time figuring out what to do. So he talks about his two uncles, one a clan member and one not a clan member, and how, how they would do it. It doesn't actually come to a resolution before it ends. But again, we knew that he had to have something to hold. He had to have something. But again, we weren't going to let him have the real thing. So he took a ball blue jar. I don't know. Nope, we're going to go back. The ball blue jar. Like I said, you can't tell by holding it this way that it's a clan jar. You can only tell when you look on the bottom. Uh, and those jars are... They stopped producing that color in the late 1930s, and there are still millions of them out there. So we had one that was not part of the collection, that if he dropped it, it was no big deal. So he gives his performance in our factory setting in the exhibit. And at the end, then, he directs folks around to where the real thing is. You can see the entrance to the, to the exhibit uh, where we canned everything from nails uh, to carrots to applesauce and put up there. Um, we gave these, these plays were given regularly on the weekends. Um, and then for any, they were also given at special times for groups, uh, scheduled groups that came through. And it worked out really well. They were a huge success. We'll keep them in our repertoire even though the exhibit is gone now uh, because they still work well in a variety of settings. And this is our young man who did the clan jar. And you can see that he's in the factory setting. This is what he would set... Uh, he would be right around uh, the uh, machinery while he was talking. And then our actress in her kitchen setting. Um, like I said, over the years we've had really interesting relationships with educators and programmers. But I think somehow we've gotten through, and they've gotten through to us too, that we were the collectors. And you know, the, our main thing was always keeping everything safe, stored well, and um, 
we got to decide how it was displayed and how it was used. Well, working with uh, this group of actors and museum managers who didn't have preconceived notions uh, but also had respect for the object uh, gave us a good opportunity to have a wonderful collaborative relationship. And so we've started on the next round of talks of what we can do with objects from our collection and how they can be used in theater performances. Now, our hope is then that some of this spills over to our other programmers and that we continue to build those relationships and you know, get more stuff out of the basement and get those stories told. So I would invite you while you're here, if you have time, make a trip and uh, come see Minatrista. Thank you. <laughs> That was really interesting. And as I said, I, this is the first time I've seen it. So um, uh, as a conservator, um, I'll just give you a few of my thoughts, um, and hopefully we won't go over time. But um, one of my thoughts while looking at this is that um, it, it's more uh, a common feeling that glass is pretty uh, stable, that it, it, other than the fact that it breaks and we have to protect it from handling, that not a whole lot is going to happen to it. And um, that is true for uh, a lot of glass, and it's possibly true for the, the ball glass because it was a good manufacturer. But what you should be aware of is that a lot of old glass is, um, is unstable, um, especially ancient glass um, that was, or even old glass that was used as trade to um, the Native American tribes um, can actually start to deteriorate because the fluxes can come to the surface in, in an unstable uh, climate. So if you don't have a stable climate uh, and you see sort of a powdery surface of glass, um, that can be because fluxes are, are coming to the surface. So that's one issue. Another issue is that uh, in order to make clear glass, they, they put an additive into it. And, and I can't remember exactly, but way back in my memory, I think it was manganese. Thank you. So she knows more about glass than I do. So, and this manganese... Um, you, you may have seen this in antique stores, and I see this all the time. The jars that they have lined up in the windows are turning like a purplish. And that's because of this uh, manganese um, being exposed to light, and it's actually changing them. So that wasn't the color that the glass was supposed to be. So just be aware of that if you do have glass, that um, it, some of it can be light sensitive, and also some of it can be sensitive to changes in, in humidity. So that's just sort of from a material standpoint. But I wanted to um, point out a few really excellent things that I saw as a conservator. And one is um, working with your colleagues in collaboration. Uh, and with mutual respect. So I thought, I thought that that was one of the best things to hear, that, that people are respecting you as a collections manager and saying, you know, we respect what you need, we need this, how can we get the right thing? And I think that the solutions that were um, come up with um, were uh, very good, you know, using facsimiles or using other parts of the collections that uh, are not um, as rare or as, as hard to come by as, as other, you know, as the... As the certain ones, and then giving people the opportunity to actually see the real items. So I thought all of those were very good solutions. Uh, and finally, uh, one uh, I, more another idea that I had while I was watching this was that um, something like uh, an image of the KKK on a on an object can invoke very strong emotions. Uh, and I think not just uh, being prepared from an educational standpoint. Point, but being prepared from an object safety standpoint, that those emotions can sometimes be so strong that they overcome a person's normal, uh, normal restraint. And we had an object uh, in our collection at the State Museum that has a swastika image on it, um, or, uh, but it wasn't 
representing Nazi Germany. It was actually um, put on there in the 20s before um, the National Socialist Party of of uh, Germany uh, co-opted that symbol. So it was a very common symbol. You see it in India a lot. You see it in tiles in old houses, you know, predating the 30s. So it's a common symbol. Um, and it was on this basket, um, and it's a, a weaver's symbol. Anyway, long story short, they had real trouble thinking about uh, even displaying that because it's such a powerful image. And what I'd just like to say is that if you do have something that has a powerful image and you're going to make a statement either about the KKK or, or a swastika that might invoke very strong emotions, you should be ready to protect that object a little bit more. So those would be objects that wouldn't be candidates for being in any kind of open display because they could be stolen, they could be broken there and people would feel perfectly justified at doing that so just keep that in mind so that's what I want to say I'm representing uh, the the education standpoint and and much like Karen described is that I would start with the story and and I think when she made the point that the theater manager asked in this so tell me the stories of the object, not just of the object itself. So for an educator um, to make an image come alive, you have to start with the content of the story and the piece. And I think that's what struck me in the development of a theater. You let the story of the object lead and then identify um, you know, what are the interesting aspects. I think it was really also interesting that, that, that they chose um, counterpoints even in their selection of their theater, a good story, a feel-good story, and then a somewhat provocative one. And in and, and working with students, um, I think you'd be surprised that how much of that that they can understand if you put it to their level. They may not know what the KKK is, but they know the bully on the schoolyard. Um, they know what what um, you know some of the the issues that they may have, and if you can relate to that, um, I think also the the comments you made about educational value um, museums have a a wonderful responsibility and also an opportunity to to teach the stories that have a value in a human life and I think that 's what I liked about. Um, the theater story um, was that it described it in a personal way, that it wasn't a big theatrical production, um, and, and it could have been, um, or a production line, but it was really a very personal story, a very simple story, and many people can re- react to that of many different ages if they do that. Um, I also was thinking, what are the sticking points as an educator? What what in the theatrical, because I've not seen the performance, what were the goals of that performance? So if you're developing one where it's an interpretive presentation for an object, identify what the goals are. Again, not having seen that performance, I'm, I'm quite certain uh, in designing that, what was the story they were telling and why are they telling it um, to do that as well. And I also like the combination of the prop versus real. Um, that in a theatrical setting, you know, we know that that actor is dealing very often with the props and that, that understanding that transition into the real um, and, and that object is a real thing and, and you know, tells the story. So that transition from a theatrical performance to the exhibit where the real thing is there, um, I liked a lot. Great, thank you. So now I will give my presentation here.
So I work at the Alaska State Museum, and uh, currently we have an exhibit uh, in, in our uh, temporary gallery. This is a traveling exhibit. It was developed by the Anchorage Museum in conjunction with the Arctic Studies Center of the Smithsonian Institution. And it's about, uh, the title of it is uh, Yupik Science, The Way We Genuinely Live, The Way We Genuinely Live. And uh, it's about how the Yupik people who live on the uh, western coast of Alaska, how they cope with their environment, and they use scientific principles uh, to cope with their environment, but they don't really think of them as, as sort of hardcore scientific principles. And so this whole exhibit is about like, wow, you know, look at all this stuff that they're doing, uh, and, and you can apply uh, sort of scientific principles to it. And in order to get this point across, there are many, many um, interactives. It's probably the most interactive heavy exhibit I've ever seen uh, in our museum. Uh, and for example, this uh, slide that I have here is uh, of a the way a, a, a seal hunter can use his paddle. He puts it down in the water and uh, holds it against the ice and actually puts his ear to the paddle and he can hear the sounds of the seals that are in that area and he can figure out how close they are and try and get closer and closer. So they have a, a recording and you actually put your ear to this um, paddle and you can hear what uh, the um, what he would hear. And next to this we they have um, material that would be uh, part of a uh, oops, sorry about that. Oh. Oops. Anyway, I'm sorry about that image there. But um, next to this, um, well, I don't know how to get rid of that. Okay, there. Sorry. So I'm trying to go back. It just doesn't seem to want to go back. Well, this is unfortunate. Let's see if that did. Okay, there we go. Uh, so this is a bunch of material that is um, next to this exhibit, and it, it relates to a celebration of, of the harvest. And um, you're actually allowed to take one of these little gifts with you um, as part of the exhibit. Uh, this is another uh, exhibit where there are um, snow goggles down low, and you press that button, and you get the amount of intensity of snow a light that would fall on your eyes, and you can see how these very simple snow goggles that have been used um, for thousands of years up in that area, how they work. Um, this is an exhibit about um, how um, to sew a waterproof uh, stitch in a seal gut uh, parka uh, that was used called kamlaika, and uh, it gives you an example, and you can actually sew that stitch in paper. Um, these are um, hats that have visors, and you can put them on. And this one I thought was particularly interesting. I know it's very dark, but um, this woman is putting her hand inside gloves that are lined with, uh, with grass, with seagrass. And one of the gloves has seagrass in it, and the other one doesn't. And her hands are on top of a cold plate that's actually plugged in and feels very cold. And she can see the insulating value of, of, those, um, of the seagrass. Um, and here's something else that's out in front of the exhibit. It's a walrus tusk, and it's, it's actually um, bolted to a line so that you can actually pick it up and feel the weight of this tusk, which is really wonderful because you can see how massive these things were. Um, these are furs that are out to be touched. So what's the problem with that? Well, this is another exhibit that's in another gallery um, that's downstairs from the main exhibit, and um, I wish this wasn't happening to my show here. <laughs> I don't know what the problem is. Um, anyway, I haven't had this problem before, so.
I apologize for this. Anyway, this is in a gallery, and this is a modern gallery, but this is a native artist. Um, his name is Dakahin, and he's a Clinket artist who works in photography, and he usually has really dramatic statements um, to, uh, about, he has dramatic statements about what it means to be a native Alaskan, what it means to be a Native American, and how a lot of that is based on blood quantum. So he deals a lot with issues of, of uh, how native are you and how much blood uh, in your body is native. And this uh, example has these vials of red liquid. It isn't blood, but he's just um, you know, using a dramatic modern representation. Uh, this, uh, I walked out of the door. There's a, a, a staff door right next to us. I walked out of this door, and I, I interrupted a young man who was taking apart this exhibit, a uh, young, probably 12-year-old, and he was pulling these things off, and he saw me, and I, I'm not making this up. I said, I said to him, uh, you can't touch that. And he said to me, oh, I'm sorry. There were so many, you know, there's been so many exhibits. Or he said, there's been so many things to touch. I just thought this was one of those. You know, and, and so I, I, I didn't chide him. I just said, well, you know, this isn't uh, one of those touch and participation exhibits. So as a conservator, I didn't realize that having uh, an exhibit upstairs with so many uh, interactives would really set a whole tone for uh, the other exhibits that are nearby or in the place. Because for certain patrons, like a young man of 12, uh, he didn't make a differentiation between all the ones that you got to play with and then ones that were down here that he really wanted to play with. And we've had a lot of issues with this particular uh, display that every time I come down there, down there, those tubes are pulled out. So, um, Something else that I'd like to share with you, if I can get this thing to work, there we go, um, is... Uh, this is another concept. So I have sort of two concepts here. One is, is use in the gallery and not use uh, in the gallery. And the other one is uh, our uh, hands-on loan collection, um, which is – I can't believe this is doing this to me. Um, I'm just going to try and hit apply because I don't know what, what else to do with this. Um, well, All right. Thank you. We'll get into something here and just close this. There. So um, this, is, um, this is an example of our hands-on loan collection. We actually send this around to schools uh, in Alaska, and we'll mail it to you. Um, and uh, I just wanted to, to note with a hands-on loan collection, I think that it's um, uh, a very good thing for a museum to have. Um, but I think that it, it is really necessary to distinguish between, you know, why an object is in a hands-on loan collection and why it might be in the permanent collection. And uh, you should be able to uphold your duty, uh, your public trust duty to, to your permanent collection of caring for it in perpetuity uh, without uh, intermixing it with your hands-on loan collection. And I've, I deal with a lot of small museums in Alaska that, that – use their collections for educational purposes and hand them out or take them to schools, and they don't really distinguish between their permanent collection and an educational collection. And I just want to show a few slides of our permanent, or these are all hands-on loan collections that are objects that are, um, as Karen said, they're not rare, they're, um, they're not expensive, uh, they're replaceable, um, but they're still objects. I mean, they're still ball jars, but, um, you know, they're uh, the dime a dozen sort of category. Some of these spoons are cast resin rather than actual um, mountain goat horns. 
Um, and why I'm showing you these is that they look like they're in museum-style cabinets, but this is actually a little bit, and some of them are in museum-style supports for objects, but this is actually a little bit more crowded uh, than you know, I, as a conservator, would want to see these if they were um, actual museum objects. This, for example, is um, a drawer of permanent collections of similar material, but you can see that everything is much more individualized, that we're caring for this um, in a little bit uh, uh, to a higher standard. Uh, of care. So, and these are even individualized little pockets. And mainly, I mean, these are stones. Uh, you know, maybe they wouldn't get harmed that much. But having individualized cutouts allows us to know when one of these happens to be uh, in some other location. We can immediately I identify that. So, um, and here's another example of of cutouts for that. And this is how we store um, our, our spoons. A lot more individualized care. Um, and that's just. Uh, this is the examples that I wanted to make with that. So that's just what I want to say. So sort of two ideas. One is uh, this idea of hands-on things transferring to people going into your regular things and attacking them. Uh, and then the idea of an of a educational loan collection um, and a permanent collection. Oh, we'll deal with that later. I think he brought up a really important article or, or issue about hands-on, hand, hands-off, that so many museums that, that students go to around the country are, you know, interactive and, you know, hands-on and touch and feel and hear and smell. It is hard sometimes for them to distinguish between the hands-on and hands-off sections of a museum. And I think that as, as an educator, um, you know, whether you have a facilitated or, or, or a tour or, you know, a friendly way to know that there are, I've seen lots of museums, you know, this is the hands-on area. Um, but a two-year-old doesn't know boundaries. A four-year-old doesn't know boundaries. And so I think you need to identify if you've done that and you're having the problem, it, it is they're not distinguished enough. Um, they're made to look like the original, and therefore it's hard for a young person to distinguish between those. I also want to make the, the comment, too, um, he brought up in the interactive exhibit about how much of that is sensory. History is a sensory experience. It's hearing it's seeing, it's smelling, it's tasting, and, and they had all the all my checkpoints when I go in and look at an exhibit to do that. And again, you know, if you're going to engage someone in an in an exhibit with all their, you know, mind and hands and sensory, you really have them. And I think from an educator, very often when I go in to look at exhibits, what senses, what stories, and and again, was it engaging them there? Sometimes um, museums put too many interactives in them. Uh, and, and they're trying to be that, oh, gosh, we have to have the hands-on component. And, and you can kind of overkill. So the balance of that, I think, is really having not seen the muse you know, that particular exhibit. But if you're developing your own um, exhibit, sometimes too many hands-on um, can be distractive. And it can also be disruptive um, to some of the other areas of the exhibit. When we do those um, and look at our exhibits, we, again, try to identify the sound spill. If you have, um, you know, clips of film, you know, overflowing into an area that's a little more contemplative. So I think as an educator, you need to watch sort of all the action, maybe even overwhelming action for some of your visitors. Well, like uh, Elaine talked about, uh, children sometimes are not knowing the boundary, and we've also found that sometimes adults don't know the boundaries, and sometimes those adults can even be on your own staff. Uh, we, we bring in a lot of traveling exhibits, and 
in one gallery, and we may have a history exhibit in the next gallery. Last year, we brought in Grossology, uh, which was highly popular with both children and adults. In the next gallery, we had a story about the Star Jeanette Recording Company in Richmond, Indiana, which was not interactive, uh, except for just a few things. We did have a piano in there that was... that could be played. Um, unfortunately, we came in one day, and the exhibit manager and I, and found our own staff playing one of the other pianos, even though it was cordoned off. Uh, we also had some problems with adults who just like to touch that way too much. So, yeah, it is a, the, the juxtaposition of those two kind of things. And then also, all, often we'll have an art exhibit in, the other, in another gallery, so it can be confusing to visitors uh, who can't figure out out or don't read but mainly can't figure out what is touchable and what isn't. Um, I also, it, we also struggle with an education collection and we, like everybody, we struggle with a lack of storage. So right now our education collection is stored in an attic over the education center and it's stored with the luminaries we use for an event and supplies that are used for programs. So while everything starts out wonderfully organized, it doesn't take long for it not to be organized. So uh, the collections folks go up there every now and then and kind of shutter and rearrange and try again so it's it's we want things to be used but it's it, it is a real struggle between how you care for things even if they're not of the uh importance to be or yeah in the in the permanent collection so it's it's always a dilemma okay thanks mm -hmm. now, I, I set you up Welcome to Indianapolis. Uh, I, I work for the Indiana Historical Society, and uh, we're working on a number of new um, exhibitions and new, new ideas for museums. And the one I'm talking today, Mike Wallace was talking about uh, a, a history, a, a, a secret at the Indiana Historical Society. Um, this is not a secret. This is something that we've been working on for a couple of years. Um, we call it Destination Indiana. And what we've done is take um, our um, collections, the Historical Society, is um, a bit different. There's a separate Indiana State Museum. It's a government agency. We're a private organization. We've been around since 1830, and we have um, pre predominantly a research library. Um, the building was opened uh, that we, um, in 1999, which is really a new face for this particular organization, and I joined um, as one of the second educators that they had ever had in the year 2000. So we are a new, um, new museum, if you will, in, in the city of Indianapolis, um, and we serve a statewide outreach. Um, but what we're doing in Destination Indiana is really to make the collections that were often in a research um, library accessible, and, and doing that um, a number of different ways. And the one I'm talking about is Destination Indiana is a digital um, going through our collections, um, identifying what we're going to call um, take a journey. Indiana has 92 counties, uh, and so there's educators, um, curators, our, our, our staff doing research within our collections to identify the images and the stories to tell those of the 92 counties of Indiana, as well as some thematic ones. Um, what we're, we're doing here, and I, I brought to show you, was uh, one of those thematic journeys. Um, what we intend to do, um, not only are these in small um, individual stations with three to five people being able to explore those, 
others uh, and take those journeys to those counties, um, but also a very large screen um, digital image, um, probably the length of this room, um, if you think you know, a very large um, high-definition digital technology run by a facilitator. Um, so what we were doing in this is trying to select what they are. Uh, we're an organization do not have three-dimensional objects. Most of ours are flat. And so um, coming from my background in a, in a um, house museum from totally three-dimensional to flat has been a really interesting um, perspective. And I've found in working with our curators um, that we do look at things differently um, when you're looking at three-dimensional objects for an exhibition versus a digital, uh, digital image for a collection. Um, so this is just a, a sort of a preview. I'm going to take you back in time. And this is Indianapolis, uh, certainly in the in the 19th century. And uh, if you look around, this is um, you know one of those bird's eye view maps um, that we had. And part of our um, our group, and it was a curator um, from our collections, the the map curator and, and myself, um, and and one of the other library staff working with another team, um, going through and identifying from thousands of images, what do you go through and pick and select to make them in interesting? And so we thought many people know what Indianapolis looks like today, but they do not know what Indianapolis looked like uh, in the centuries before. So we like the bird's eye view because uh, if you've seen, uh, as you walk around Indianapolis, uh, we have a few taller buildings than what you see in that particular picture. So we like that, you know, the bird's eye view is a higher up view and we thought that would be something that the public would look at. Um, we actually chose a different one um, for a very different reason but again the bird's eye view or an interesting accessible type of map. The Historical Society has a number of historic maps. And maps, um, as an educator, bring a particular challenge. Um, I myself, is, I adore maps. I love looking at them. But I recognize they are symbolic. And if you do not have a perspective of history and, and a perspective of the time, it's very difficult um, to understand the interpretive. So uh, in this particular one, and we, we were going through this, identifying uh, what would be good and potential um, selections. And I chose this one to show you as an educator why this one sat on our, gosh, we like this map uh, image. Um, it's an early map of, uh, again, uh, North America. Um, but also, um, being an educator, I looked the symbolic pieces of this map tells a story um, as well of exploration of discovery of a time much before us. So we ended up um, you know, keeping this one on our selection list for quite a while because it had the symbolic images um, of the ships. Um, it certainly showed the unknown territory of the oceans. You see the mermaid over there. Um, it had the classic um, you know, designs of what you see in foreign languages. It had all those, as I said, the points that we thought we could teach with maps um, and teach it in a visual and a way as well as a symbolic way. So this one stayed there for quite a while. It's also extraordinarily colorful. Um, again, if you're selecting those for a digital image product, you know, many, many maps are in black and white, um, and this one happened to be a very, very colorful one. I've been doing uh, map programs for about uh, nine of the years I've been at the Indiana Historical Society. And um, very interesting um, thought perspective between the, um, the curator of the map collection and I that were working on this. And our particular challenge was um, a category that we're going to call types of maps. 
and he went one direction, I went, and it was a very interesting thought process that I went for one week and sat with my little self to say, if I were going to go to the Historical Society's map collection and select types, what would I pick? And he went to among the thousands and thousands of maps in our collection, and this particular one was on both of our lists. Again, for the same reason, it's accessible, it's a very visual image, it's not as colorful, but you can tell exactly what the story is. And so it was interesting. This was um, one we had from thousands and thousands, we had to pick 15. So it's very interesting on how the selection process goes and, you know, which one of these uh, get thrown overboard and which one stay. This one was from the beginning, um, one of those early um, maps of the United States that we wanted to keep. It tells the story of an early um, in early forming of the country and the patriotism that we were here. So this was an easy one for, for us both to keep on our list, and it did make the final cut. This one is an interesting one, and it's hard for you to see this here. It is a, um, a blueprint-type background. Um, one of the other projects that I was involved in working with uh, another curator um, from our library was on the maps with the idea of transportation. Uh, we also sat, again, she sat in her office and I sat in mine one day, and then we met together um, to go through and look at those. And this one is a, a map of Indiana. It's, it's to, it looks like a, an architectural blueprint, um, dark blue in the background and, and white on the front. And what um, the story of this one, as I said, for an educator, it was the stories of the canals in Indiana. Um, and, and where they were, they were actually not built. Um, there was only a portion of it that ever was built, but to show um, that the plan was there to make us um, a, a waterway throughout the state. Obviously, the railroads um, sort of preempted that, uh, and they were never built. But what was interesting, and why this one, we struggled in keeping this with the list so long, it's not from that time. It's actually um, much later. It's in the, in the 20th century. So we were trying to debate that argument of what is a good teaching tool about the transportation of early Indiana days and not a historic map of the canals because we had to choose both. And as an educator, I chose it because of the graphic. As I said, it was easy to understand for those who do not know what a canal is or where they may have gone. And because a map, again, is a graphic repre representation. So there was much debate and discussion between the two of us. Um, and this one actually was the one we chose versus the historical um, maps that we had of the, of the actual plats of where the canals were being built. Um, the stories of these, again, in, in selecting as an educator, and when you get into a graphic, and in our particular case, they were flat. I mean, like I said, we had thousands and thousands and thousands. What was surprising to me in the, in the selection is how the curator had a very different mindset in terms of what he was looking for and what I did. When you go through, educators tend to see it from an audience and what an audience wants and the audience that we serve, and we're dealing with a very broad audience. And the curator was teaching was the types of maps of all the different types that you could have. And so in the end, we ended up as a, what I think is going to be a really interesting um, marriage of beautifully graphic maps that tell a story. And so between the educator, um, which was my representation of that decision, is what are the maps that tell the good story? And then from the curator, what are the, the maps that are the most historic? And we really had some fantastic ones to pick from. So um, this is going to open up in uh, March of 2010. 
And like I said, we, we piloted in, in 2008. We are closed right now um, in developing this. But it's been a fantastic arrangement between the curator and, and the educational staff. Um, a couple of my staff members are doing some of the county journeys is in terms of how do you tell a story with the least amount of words on the case of a map, no words at all. Um, about how the state was developed, how it was explored, and how it changed over time. So, thank you. Um, well, this this brought up kind of a a, a point that that I always like to make, and that's um, this idea of preservation uh, versus access. And uh, if you've ever been to the National Portrait Gallery, which just opened, they opened at the, the Lund Conservation Center, which is uh, on the top floor there, uh, and it's, um, they have a guided tour that takes you through um, these areas, and you can look in kind of in a glass fishbowl and see the conservators working there. Uh, and they, uh, the woman who gives the tour has a very good, she has a background in education, not in conservation actually, so she, she actually has a really good way of, of describing it. And she says for every unit of uh, preservation that you get, you have to give up a unit of access and vice versa. So if you want a lot of access, you have to actually give up a lot of preservation. And so, you know, we're trying to strike that balance. Uh, and th that just made me think about this when you were talking about um, having these on in a digital format on a large screen. Uh, and I began to wonder, um, whereas for two-dimensional things like a map, um, in, in a museum display, if you're displaying the original map, you really don't have to worry too much about handling because people don't generally have that high expectation of being able to handle two-dimensional things that are hanging on the wall. They seem to accept that. Um, and they don't tend to go and pick at them, or you, sometimes they're behind glass. So, so the handling interaction aspect of it is not a problem. Um, but we do have the light aspect. So that very colorful map would have a light aspect problem uh, if it were on permanent display or long-term display. We'd have to make sure that the light levels are low. So one alternative would be to, well, we could um, put up a facsimile. You know, we could do, uh, hopefully, maybe a large digital copy or digital copy it in, in sections and print it out or something. And then people could look at a two-dimensional replica of it or a facsimile. But I've noticed that people, a lot of audiences they, or patrons, they don't really like to look at too many facsimiles. You know, they, they, they want to know that they're in front of the real thing. Uh, and, and I can understand that, so I don't have a problem with that. Uh, so I was just wondering if people have the same feeling if you're looking at a digital screen. Because it's, it's the image, but it's not a facsimile. So we're not trying to pawn it off on them as if it were real. So I'm wondering if an audience is more accepting looking at a, you know, a high-resolution, beautiful digital image of that map and whether it doesn't go into their brain like, oh, well, that's just a facsimile. I don't care about that. A lot of times that happens if you show if you have on the label copy, oh, this is a facsimile. So that brought up that issue with me that I hadn't really thought about, that uh, for two-dimensional objects, maybe showing them in really high resolution with a lot of maybe ability to zoom in or move around that you can do with digital takes out that aspect of an audience disappointment at a facsimile. So that was one idea that I had. Well, we have a very nice map collection, too. Not to the tune of the Historical Society by any means, but a very nice collection. And we've worked with our educators to uh, make reproductions of some of these maps that then they do use in uh, a, a school tour on communities. And it, 
again, we don't, while we may display a two-dimensional piece in a gallery for a couple of months, uh, we don't get, certainly, even a framed one, we don't give to the educators to use with children. So it's... It's also a problem. We don't have a conservator on staff. Uh, we don't have scanners that are big enough to handle many of these maps. So we actually had to farm them out to be scanned, and that's always a real concern because you don't know. Even with your, when you're with somebody, you don't know exactly how they're going to handle it. Uh, but then it becomes just a printout and laminated. So I. It's great for teaching about maps, but then you're also not teaching the children about an actual. Artifacts. So I'm always concerned with that, too, that that laminated thing that you can handle, you don't get the same respect as you do for the actual piece. So that's our dilemma that, that, that we deal with. Terrific. Well, um, those are now the three presentations, um, and now we have uh, about a half an hour. Uh, if you have any questions about something that you've seen on the slides or if you wanted to ask a question about some comment that was made or if you have your own situation, which we really like to hear about, um, we'd love to hear about that. Uh, but as I said, um, if, if you raise your hand, I'll bring you this microphone. We have to speak into the microphone. And I'll be sort of out there. And the two of you, if you're going to answer, you're going to have to kind of be sharing that microphone. So does, does anybody have anything that they want to talk about? Don was my comrade in arms for the first, very first conservator, curator of Point Counterpoint. I'm Don Rooney, and I'm one of three curators at the Atlanta Historical Society. We have a staff of about 65 full-time. And your discussion today caused me to think about a committee that was set up at our institution four years ago, a collections development committee, where by the first time in our 80-year history, a variety of staff would sit around the table on a periodic basis and review new acquisitions decisions. Uh, that includes curators and collections staff members and archivists coming together to look at the value uh, of a prospective object for our collection. And it caused me to think about the fact that an educator is not on that committee uh, when a new object is offered to the historical society, it's considered for accession status or perhaps brought into the collection in a non-accessioned status, which doesn't require the same level of care. I'm wondering if any, any of you are participatory in the decisions for new objects that come into your institutions or if there are other museums that are represented here where educators are involved in the decision-making uh, as objects are considered not only for their interpretive exhibit research value, but for their education value. I, I think um, in terms of representing the Indiana Historical Society, um, we are not. Um, but I will tell you, we have a really good relationship with our curators, um, and we share their excitement when they have one. Uh, it's something that's come into the collection. And, and very often, um, just because I know them and they know me, you know, I ask them, what's new, what's going on? And so that rapport, whether you're talking about whether it's on a formal committee, um, I say, you know, they'll say, I've got this one, you want to see it, I'm down there. Uh, to, to take a look. And, and I think that's what the educators, um, I don't know that I necessarily 
would insist on being in that decision. Um, but certainly when there are new items that come in um, and take a look at, I very often go down and look if I hear of them to find out, um, to see some of those. And the same thing when the exhibitors are selecting items for that. I mean, there's sort of a different decision process, but the education group um, is involved in that. So in terms of the care and the, you know, the conservation that's needed, um, we're not particularly involved in that. But when it comes to how are they going to be used and, and in what forum and was it a digital, you know, we're involved in the presenting that to the public. Well, what we've done in the past is we're fairly insular in our collections committee, and it's just been the collection staff. But a couple of times a year, we do invite our educators in to take a look at you know what may have come in in that first six months. But I think we haven't done it in a way that I particularly like because we've already separated out what we think needs to go into the permanent collection and what we show them is what we think they might be interested in for the educational collection. So what I I have recently uh, proposed that we uh, form a wider committee that would include educators, that would include our exhibit manager, and frankly might even include somebody from retail to see what, what you know, photographs, whatever, uh, things in the collection might even be developed for uh, sale in the retail shop. Um, I don't know how that one's going to go through. I got pretty much a gasp when, when I said that. So it, it hasn't happened yet, but we'll see what does happen. Well, yeah, those are very good points. Um, and I, I just was thinking about what you were saying. I mean, yeah, it's great to have collaboration, but then you get this committee so huge, yeah. you know, and then everybody. Um, I... Uh, when I was I was a conservator at the Alaska State Museum for six years, and and when I was um, doing the the conservation for the museum instead of doing outreach, what I do now, uh, I was on the committee uh, as a conservator. So that's that's fairly common. Uh, but I actually had trouble being on that committee because, from my standpoint, um, I didn't really I didn't really want to give a voice to whether this should be a part of the collection or not, uh, because that's not my background and training. What I would say to them is uh, the advice that I wanted to be able to give most of the time was like, well, that's in really bad condition, and it would it would really cost a lot to to you know or take a lot of my time. Let's say you know, do we really want to do that? Is it that important? Th- that would be the kind of advice that I would give. Or if or if something came up, I would say, well, this is really hard to care for, or you know, something along those lines. But what what I always wanted to hear from from a committee is is really saying how this object um, enhances our mission or helps us to, you know, to do our, our job here. Uh, and one incident came up that I thought was really well worked out, which was um, there's this material that you may not be familiar with. It's called Marsden matting, uh, and it was used during World War II to lay out on the tundra in order to land planes on the tundra. And if you've ever walked on tundra, it's very spongy. And if a plane landed on that, it would, the wheels would just immediately go into it and it would flip over. So they had this, the Army developed this stuff, and I guess Mr. Marsden developed it. But it's um, lightweight uh, steel plates that have a lot of perforation in them so they don't have a lot of weight, but they interlock. And they basically laid it out on huge tracks. I mean, just so there's a lot of this stuff around in Alaska. I see it all the time. And uh, so we got a, a bit of it. Uh, donated or it was up for donation and uh, it wasn't in very good condition because it had been out in the Aleutian Islands and it actually been landed on quite a bit um, as opposed to having been surplus stuff so it was actually used 
but it had uh, suffered from a marine environment. And they were asking me, you know, uh, whether we should accession this or not. And I said, well, to deal with this stuff, you know, in this quantity, that's huge. You know, I need big vats to soak it in. I need lots of equipment and everything. And I said, well, what do you want it for? You know, what are you, you going to do with it? And the exhibits guy says, well, all I want to do is I want to have it in the back of the case for our, um, you know, for our World War II exhibit because it makes a nice backdrop. It's better than just an empty background. And so I thought, well, accession some of it into like an exhibit prop type collection or, you know, education collection where we don't have that obligation to care for this in perpetuity. And then let's accession one piece of this into the permanent collection and I'll take care of that. So that's the way I would want it to go all the time from a conservator standpoint is to have other people like education people or exhibit people or the curator tell me why it's important so that I could figure out whether it's, you know, how much time it would take to really work on that. So that's a very good question, Don. Anybody else? Here we go. We've got plenty of time, so think of your questions. My question's for Elaine. I was wanting to ask about the two maps of the United States that you showed. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the history of those and why you chose to put them with uh, a presentation where all the other maps are um, of Indiana? Well, we'll uh, back up a couple. There, there are several different journeys um, that we were talking about, and she... Um, this is the interesting part about the, the discussion between the educator and the curator. Um, if you look at um, geography and map education, uh, that they start either chronologically or by type of map. Hemis- you know, world global maps, hemispheric maps, North and South American maps, or they, they do it in a chronological standpoint. So that was one of the dilemmas that we had is to choose which way we're going to do these different journeys. Um, and we actually ended up in kind of a mix that there are some of these journeys, and there's about a half a dozen of them um, that are in the works, that are chronological. And some of them, the one that I was working on was by type of map. And so the, the map here is done, um, I think, I don't know the exact date off the top of my head, um, but, but it is... Um, Early, it's it's done in the 1800s. It's commemorative maps, but it was at the time of the you know early 1800, 1830, 1840, I think, where the you know the republic was being formed, and there was this new sense of country. And it's also what I, in my category of maps, was what I would consider a commemorative map in terms of representing the United States, not in a physical way. Um, but there, so it show it, it didn't in our type of map category we didn't go chronological we went to represent um, those that are illustrative and that's why this one stayed. Um, this other one is a if I can bring it back here um, is done in, in, and I we chose it for a couple of reasons. It, it was done um, a lot of the early map makers you know the they're to show the very detail along the border. So this one is, I think it's in the late 1700s. Um, map making at that time was a real heyday. It was probably not the most you know, gorgeous map that we had. Um, and the choice, again, for maps of this type were what did they show and what stories did they tell. So this map, when you, I mean, we had literally dozens of you know, maps from the late 1700s to the 1800s to look at. Um, and some of them we actually chose to be because they were artistically beautiful. And this one was one on that list that it was, it hit all the letters of, it was a, 
a type of map that was showing an early North American map, an exploration map, and showed the symbolic um, teaching that you could do with that one. So the, we ended up with journeys that were chronological and across all time um, by type of map. Great, okay. Um, we'll start there, and then you'll be next. I'm Paula Homan, and I'm with the St. Louis Cardinals. We have a museum, and uh, so I take care of the old bats <laughs> and the old gloves and all that stuff. And um, we're in transition right now, but we're getting ready to reinvent ourselves in um, new construction that I'm knocking on whatever to uh, say we'll be in a place by 2012. But we have an educational program that is going to grow into the museum that we're running during the off-season in the stadium right now. And one of the things that um, Brian Finch and I talk about, because he, he's a, a, a great guy to do that educational program. He's doing a super job with it. But he tends to come in with more of a, a baseball collector passion. And I have this background of uh, museum and um, the ethics of handling stuff and preservation and all that stuff. So if, if the three of you had some kind of really basic rules that said definitely stays over here in the preservation thing um, versus, no, I think we can, uh, we can handle having people touch these things. What are the most basic things that you guys do that start to create those boundaries for you? I'm going, to make, I'm going to make mine real brief. Um, I, I said earlier I've done map programs. I have never done it with the reproduction. I have only done it with originals. Um, and I've done it for kids as young as seven years old. And, and I think um, when you're dealing with originals, that respect that you mentioned earlier, um, in, in terms of you'd be surprised how many school-age kids understand when you say the real stuff. Um, whether it's a real bat, whether it's a, you know, a baseball trading card, you know, whether it's a map from the 1600s. They understand the real thing and the respect. And you ha what we've done, and the first time I did it, um, I brought the curator down with me. Um, because I would, obviously they were concerned, oh my gosh, you're bringing the original, you have 40 kids down there looking at it, uh-huh. Um, and so what, what I did, and they actually were there with me, and they realized after the third program um, that the kids are, you know, we're not bringing glasses of Cokes to sit around. So I think the setting that you put them in and have that conversation with the students that are there that I trust you to show you the real thing. I trust you to be respectful of the real thing. And in nine years, I have never had a problem um, with those. Again, adults in the, you know, with the group. Um, but, but I don't use an educational um, collection. I actually um, work with original materials because that's what we're all made of. Do you want to go next? Um. Well, I can just speak, you talk with somebody from a baseball collector background. Our, our recently retired curator of business and industrial history came to us with what we affectionately call a jarhead background in that he was a, a, a jar collector and that you want one of everything. Um, so getting somebody to narrow down a little bit into making a real collection that has the stories to go with it can sometimes be difficult with those people because they, they, they want it. Um, but as far as, as making the decision, um, 
we certainly we collect much more than ball jars, but I'm just kind of uh, concentrating on that. We certainly go with the rarity of it. Uh, and we use a lot of common jars in programs, ones that, that we're not too concerned about. And it's the real thing. It's out of our collection, but it's the real thing. Uh, because jars are amazing. They're, they're actually amazingly sturdy. Um, so it's not whether using it real or not. It's 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 holding people off into collecting everything under the sun. <laughs> well, I'd just like to thank you for that question because I think it was a, not only a really good question but really well put too. Is um, and I deal with this situation a lot uh, going to small museums. It seems to. Uh, I haven't dealt with sort of a memorabilia museum like that, but it, it happens a lot in um, transportation type museums. Air. air airplane type museums where where some of the collection is actually in use and one uh, museum in particular that um, that I've heard the conservators there talking about this exact issue is the Ford they call it the Ford now but it used to be the Henry Ford and Greenfield Village Museum but it's called the Ford now and they actually have a very well developed well thought out uh, categorization system of for their objects uh, and I would suggest uh, looking on their website uh, and if, if you can't find it on their website, exactly what you're looking for, the conservator there that developed this is a woman named Mary Fahey, is her name, Mary Fahey. Um, and uh, she uh, developed these criteria, and they have four different categories. And, and I think it's really important to think about it like that. They actually um, give rides in authentic model whatever, A or T or whatever, Fords. They actually take people in these cars that are original. These aren't reproduction cars. But so many of those cars were made that, um, and they keep these running, and they have the engineers, you know, they have the mechanics there that, that actually work on these cars. And they've accepted the fact that these cars are, are going to have a lifespan, that they're going to be used, that they're going to be subjected to what we call consumptive use. Um, and that's okay, because that's what that collection is for. And then there's, there's two other categories of, you know, sort of rare or not so rare, and it goes on up to the, the fourth category is, is really the, the mechanical objects that they have there that are irreplaceable, one of a kind, very unique, great story goes along with them, that it would make a huge hole in your collection if, if that piece got damaged. So that's one idea that, that I'd like to... You know, present to you about that, that if you're talking to, I mean, we have the one issue with the patrons coming in, but you have this other issue with this gentleman there that has a very uh, strong familiarity with these pieces, and, and he feels like, you know, he just use the bat or put on the glove or whatever he wants to do with them, and I can understand that too. So if you need to make the argument to him, um, and this is a little bit of a separate argument for what you were making with working with kids and telling them this is the real thing. And I think that's so wonderful. You know, if you can have them put on little gloves or something, you know, that's great. But if you're working with your own staff and trying to make this point, which is sometimes difficult to make, um, my suggestion is that you work from the aspect of, um, you know, what is the mission of your museum and what are your obligations? And if you're a 501c3, um, you know, in the nonprofit world, if you're a nonprofit, then you, your collection actually is in the public trust. That's just the definition of the 501c3. So, and as a public trust, you don't own your collection in particular. You're caring for it uh, in lieu of the public. And if you don't care for it properly, the attorney general of the state can actually separate you from your collection. And they've done, they do that. They've done that before. Um, and the most famous example is the 
Museum of the American Indian, which became the National Museum of the American Indian because the nonprofit board was separated from their collection because they were doing a lot of very unethical things, and it went to the Attorney General of New York, and they were separated from their collection. So I'm not saying to make this dramatic you know, statement, but the truth of the matter is, is that you do have an obligation to care for your collection, and, and part of that caring for it is to care for what is meaningful on that collection. So let's say you have a, a giant, let's say, tractor in your museum, and it's very robust, uh, and it was made to be used, and really does, uh, you know, does climbing on that tractor, does that, does that destroy what it is used for? Well, you're going to have to make that, you're going to have to ask those questions. So for your collection, does swinging a baseball bat, I mean, does that, you know, a guy's out there and he's going to show the kids that you swing this bat, or, or letting somebody handle that baseball bat, does that fundamentally alter that piece so that it is no longer fulfilling the function that it had in your museum? And sometimes that answer, even for swinging a baseball bat, is yes, you know. I mean, if that was the last baseball bat that Hank Aaron or somebody had in their hands and Hank Aaron's DNA is on that bat, well, I wouldn't want a whole bunch of other DNA on that bat, to tell you the truth, you know? Um, so, but if it's just one of many bats from a certain era, I don't know, you know? It, it doesn't sound that dramatic to me. So, you know, th the truth of the matter is, is that we can really fundamentally alter objects by handling them or by exposing them to light or to exposing them to a lot of conditions. And sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. So I would look to what is being handled and determine, is that unique? Is it one of a kind? Does it have a great history that goes along with it? You know, is that a baseball bat that Babe Bruce signed or a ball that he signed or something, you know? And on and on and on. So those, those are kind of two ideas that, that I would, you know, put forth to you that, um, you know, go ahead. you want to have a counterpoint to the counterpoint? <laughs> I don't want to mischaracterize Brian. He he does have a lot of respect for uh, for our museum pieces, but he is trying to operate a, a growing educational program. And he mentioned to me the other day that the Louisville Slugger Museum down in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, recently started a program um, that the people that come to the museum absolutely love. And it is uh, teaching with the real object. And because there is a lot of fascination with at least in my museum, with ball players and, and their stuff. Uh, and there are people that uh, consider that a very collectible market. It's great. Uh, now you can go to the Louisville muse Museum, and they have someone that's kind of cordoned off, and they have a huge box of white gloves that are there available for the patrons. And the patrons can actually say, I'd like to really hold a Joe DiMaggio bat or I'd like to really hold um, a Babe Ruth bat. And because it's the Louisville Slugger Museum and they're the manufacturers of all those bats and they have a whole vault full of bats that were the pattern for the models they made for these players, they can bring those things out. And <laughs> um, so Brian was telling me about that and I said, yeah, we do have a lot of Stan Musial bats. Um, but it's just something that... Uh, I begin to uh, try to figure out, you know, where the boundary is because, you know, we got a lot of Stan Musial bats, but we don't have too many Rogers Hornsby bats. And um, it's interesting that, um, you know, 
the kids put on the white gloves or the adults put on the white gloves, and so it's a teaching opportunity as well. And so Brian was kind of gauging my reaction to the idea that, oh, you know, in the new museum we're going to be like, you know, starting to give people opportunities to handle these things. And uh, a bat, frankly, is something that, you know, you can probably handle without too much fear of uh, having a lot of problems with it, especially if you make the point of saying, here, put on these white gloves. But uh, just curious to hear about these things. Thank you for a good program. Yeah, that's a perfect example. And, and I do think, I mean, I don't have a problem with that if they're going to wear gloves, you know. And, and like you say, you know, it's a lot of bats. So I, I think it really enhances visitor experience if you can pull it off. So as a conservator, I don't have a problem with it. You had a question? Uh, my question also deals with handling objects, uh, but specifically replicas or facsimiles. Um, I'm an educator, so I really can see the value of it, but one of the fears that I have as an educator, specifically with using replicas or facsimiles, is that uh, the educator becomes too reliant on those and doesn't use the object at all um, that's in the collection. So I, I'm just wanting to know... Um, how you all have approached that or have seen it sort of backfire on you where the replica is only being used over and over again and the object itself is not really being referred to. I'm going to follow up in the discussion we had earlier about the, the map, the digital map being the original. And, and I think that's one of those cases where, to me, if you need a, if you need a, a, a a facsimile to do the teaching part of it, you know, and I always, if I've used something, you know, whether a digital presentation or something, that if you want to see the original, it's there for you to see, and, and, I, and, and I've always talked to historians, and being a historian myself, there's something incredible about holding and seeing the real thing, that no, no facsimile or reproduction, we've done reproductions of our materials in educational curriculum packets and so forth, and, and I always tell the teachers that, that if you need to use those in your classroom, um, but if you want to really have an aha moment with your students, um, come to the museum where they can see it and touch it. And I've, um, again, depending on the the fragility of that and, and, you know, just see enormous respect, whether it's, you know, in a, you know, a, a sleeve where, you know, it's still going to be protected from the hands that are touching it or if it's gloves or whatever, um, that if you can get the original in their either in their site or adjacent to it, that I don't like to use facsimiles without knowing that the original is still accessible, whether it's an exhibit like you were describing or, or whether it's um, to know that the real thing exists somewhere where they can still see it and touch it and feel it. And generally, we don't use facsimiles. About the only thing we do are the maps that I talked about and some photographs. But even with photographs, a lot of times we'll do like Elaine said, and bring them out in a sleeve so that we have the real thing. And then the facsimile may get passed around to look at. Uh, Three-dimensional objects, actually that jar over there is the first time that I can think of that we ever did use a facsimile. We've always used the, the real thing, whether it's from the educational collection, which it is about probably about 75% of the time, or if it's from the permanent collection, but always under supervision that we, we use the real thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree that um, there is just some magic that happens around the real thing. And if, if I went to your museum and I was told the story of, of the orphanage and or the children's home 
and somebody said, well, this isn't the real jar, but it's just like it, mm-hmm. you know, I just wouldn't have the same feeling, you know, but, but you see that jar, and you just have this immediate connection to it, and I, I think that's, that's something that we as museum people, and even me as a conservator, we have to be able to, um, we have to preserve that experience, because that's what makes us, in my opinion, uh, different from other types of organiz- educational organizations, let's say, that the, to me, the difference between a museum and, and a lot of other really great entities doing really great things is that we have the stuff, and we are taking care of that stuff, and it's not just for the short term. I mean, we have to get away from that thinking of, I've, I've actually heard this argument, is, oh, what does it hurt? You know, I'm handing this around, and it's the real thing. You know, there, there's a guy in Alaska that actually has a, uh, a Thomas Edison um, uh, one of those cylinder um, devices. So before it was a, a record player like this, it was a cylinder, a wax cylinder. And he actually plays it for people. And, and I was trying to tell him, well, you know, you can do that now. And yes, that's a wonderful experience for the whatever thousand people that come by to hear that. But pretty soon, the, it's going to ruin that cylinder by, to keep playing it. You know, so it, maybe you could make a recording of it or something. But... You know, I think having that wax cylinder there and seeing it really brings people back to a time, you know, now, especially young kids, to and now it looks totally old, you know, because it's this little cylinder. It doesn't even look like what they may have seen in the pictures, you know, of a, of a record. So I, I do think that somehow we need to preserve that experience because that's what we're good at. Um, and uh, I don't know that facsimiles give you that same thing. Especially, I think you're obligated to tell them it's a facsimile um, because we don't want to try and pull one over on them. But once you say it's a facsimile, then people say, oh, well, that's not the real thing. You know, so, yeah, right here. My name is Dan Jones, and I work at Living History Farms in Des Moines. And as soon as you say living history, of course, there are all the collections problems that go with that. I have a comment and then a question. Uh, I think it goes back to the mission of the museum. Why do you exist? In the case of Living History Farms, we show the history of Midwestern agriculture and rural life. We do farming, so we're going to put a plow in the ground and use it. If it's John Deere's plow, don't give it to us. We're going to use it, abuse it, and it's going to be gone. Uh, So that's my comment. The mission is very important. And here's my question. To what extent do you involve conservators, educators, and collections staff in the same types of training, and your interpretive staff, and your maintenance staff, and your reception staff, and all staff in the museum that might come in contact with artifacts. You want me to go first? <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, very good comment, and and I do believe it all comes back to the mission. And um, I, you know, I'm even getting my head around. Uh, museums that do use their objects, you know, uh, it, it takes me a little while. I have to, I have to really be diplomatic about it and bend over backwards. But um, you know, I do think that things can be used in in, in an effective way. Um, and I love what you said. You know, if 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 that isn't the object that that you want to have used, don't give it to us. And I think that that's very valid. So um, you know, I I do think that there are ways of doing that. Uh, in terms of your question. Uh, about training, uh, what we do at, at our museum is that everybody in our museum and every volunteer who comes to work there uh, all gets a standard 
uh, handling. Um, it's a hand. We call it. Um, what do we call it? The hand. We get them. Give them the handling training. That's what we call it. So they all get uh, handling training. It's conducted by the conservator. Uh, and what's interesting about that is we had a, a gentleman start to work with us after he uh, had been in the private sector developing exhibits for 25 years and had he, he's a mount maker, he builds exhibits, uh, all this stuff, and he became our curator of exhibits. And we still gave this handling training to him, even though he's been handling objects for a really long time. Um, and the reason was is because we wanted everybody to be on the same page, whether they've handled objects their whole lives or not, with what our expectations were as the Alaska State Museum. So even if people have really good instincts or, or do it really well, we wanted them to know that these are our rules and that way um, they can pass those rules on to somebody else or they would know when those rules really aren't being followed by somebody. So uh, you know, it, it wasn't meant to be like, oh, well, you don't know how to do this. So that's important to give everybody credit for being you know, careful and using common sense, but we just want everybody to know what the rules are. So that's about the only training that we do on a regular basis. But in terms of, I think part of your question, too, is like sending people off for training or bringing somebody in to train staff and whether everybody participates. Was that? Cross-training between programs and collections. Okay. So do education staff get trained on how to use artifacts? And by the same token, do collection staff get trained on how artifacts are used as part of the education mm. program? Well, I can just say um, no. <laughs> at, at my museum, there, there isn't that much crossover. So, um, We may be somewhat unique at the Indiana Historical Society. The education department are historians, and we're, we're used to handling artifacts. Um, and part of the, I mean, fr- even the graduate student interns, the library at, at our particular institution, you know, that's where the materials are and that's where you go. So very often it's a mentoring, not a formal educational training that you're talking about in terms of working with that staff. We work with them all the time. So we see how they handle them. I mean, there's not a formal training. Um, we also have, in, in terms of a very good relationship with our, our the conservation area, enough, I mean, it's close enough that you're, you know, it's a phone call or an email and, and a conversation. So there's not a formal training program. I think it's because we've worked together, and many of us for a number of years, in working with those together that, that there is an expectation that we know. And if you don't know, you ask. We don't have a cross-training program, so I will say collections people really don't know that much about what the educators do. But a couple of things that we do do as part of our new staff orientation, they get every new staff member, whether it's a gardener or grounds grounds person, retail, whatever, gets a tour of collections and a brief uh, demonstration then of how to handle things. And then we do a little bit further training. Uh, We have an emergency planning team, and that emergency planning team gets uh, trained on how to handle artifacts. Um, And then we rely very heavily on our facilities people and our grounds people to do deep cleaning for us in our storage areas and luckily we've had the same crew for some time now but they always get an update every year before we do deep cleaning on how to handle things so everybody in the organization has at least that much training okay so we have uh, time for oh. Can, can just, yep. 
counterpoint? I, I'd like to make not, not so much a counterpoint, but a suggestion um, in terms of the, do the curators know what the educators are doing. Um, I can't imagine it, at our institution doing a program without their involvement. And I think very often the walls, um, you know, a long-standing, it was a, a you know a research institution. You know, it took a while to get to that point, but I think it's they assist with with our programs. Sometimes they're the presenters in our programs. Uh, you know, and I think that's probably the best thing. If you don't have that close relationship, um, the, the time to start is when you get back to your own institution. Um, it just it develops over time, and I think that's what you have to start is take the first step. So we we probably have time for one more idea or comment. Um, if anybody else has something burning in them. Sure, right here. I just have a comment regarding what was said last. By the way, I'm Alice Smith-Gokey. I'm here in Indianapolis. And it's not only educating, you know, the curators versus collections and educators, what everyone's doing. I think it's just important as we educate our security staff I and people who don't work directly in one of these areas, perhaps the volunteers or actors that come in, because I've had security guards and actors ask me, why is it so dark in here? <laughs> I mean, that's a basic conservation thing that we know that objects are light sensitive. But for somebody who's been on staff for five years not to know why it's dark, it obviously means we're missing something. And I ask you guys to also think about what your security staff can tell you. I've been interviewing some staff at the Lily House, which is part of the Indianapolis Museum of Art, and they know what people are curious about. They know what people try to touch. They know what they have to clean all the time. So they have been sitting there and watching people for such a long time. They're probably more of a resource than you realize. Well, those are excellent, excellent points, and it's a good, uh, good thing to close with. Um, just thinking about, you know, Everybody at your museum, everybody at your institution is a resource. So um, I'd just like to say thank you. I'd like to say thank you to my colleagues for uh, being up here with me. Um, I think this was uh, a very successful session, and as usual, um, I, I think that the, this part went really fast. We just burned up over 35 minutes of discussion, discussion, which I found very fascinating, and I always do. So I appreciate your comments, and I appreciate you coming. And let's give a round of applause to our speakers. Thank you very much.